morning. All right, you've already practiced once, so let's do it again. He is risen. Awesome. Uh, if you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, lead pastor for Riverwood, and I am just so honored and thrilled that you've joined us on this uh, Easter Sunday. And kids, man, I just love having you guys with us. You just bring so much joy and so much energy into this place, hearing you guys sing. And I just want you to know that today, even though a little bit of what we get into is going to kind of get a deep theologically, I think you guys are going to be able to get, get it. Like, I'm not just talking to your moms and dads. This is for you too, because Jesus did not just come for adults. He came for kids. Now, when I was a kid, I'm not sure I would have grasped everything I'm going to tell you today. I, you see, I don't think I was quite the brightest kid that God had put on the planet. Like, it, it's embarrassing to look back and realize the things that I believed, and it, and it reveals that I kind of did not be able, I was not able to grasp reality. I, I'll give you an example. When I was four, I was convinced I could fly. Now, I, I don't know if that's because my last name's Bird or because I'd seen Superman or watched The Greatest American Hero. All I know is I had vivid memories of flying. Now, I realized that they were probably dreams, but I thought that they really had happened. So I have a vivid memory of flying from my playset in my backyard to the fence on the other side. I remember flying in my basement. Now, for some reason, I could only fly in the spring and summer. I guess the weather had to be warm. I couldn't fly in the winter. But I knew I could fly, revealing I did not quite grasp gravity and reality. Another example, my parents have kept uh, oral historical records of my lack of ability to grasp the lyrics of songs. One day in kindergarten, I come home and I start singing a new song I've learned in music class. And I just knew that they knew it. We all live in a popper copperine, a popper copperine, a popper copperine. My parents are looking at me like, no, Aaron, that's the Beatles song, Yellow Submarine. No, I knew it was a popper copperine. No idea what a popper copperine is, but my five-year-old mind had it grasped. Another song, kids, you know this one? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Okay, see, someone does know it. Right now, the song's going to be stuck in your head the whole rest of the day. Well, the third verse says, I have the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. However, my little five-year-old mind thought it was, I have the pickle patch of understanding down in my heart. Now, I do like pickles, but I have no idea why I wanted a pickle patch down in my heart. Thus revealing that I did not grasp reality. Unfortunately, though, my lack of understanding, revealing I was probably not due for an Ivy League education, did not extend to just my misunderstanding of science and gravity, nor to the words of songs. By the way, did you know that when you forget the words of songs, that's called lyric alitosis? I, I suffer horribly from this condition. But my misunderstanding extended to faith. Now, you've got to understand that my mom and dad were brand new baby Christians when I was born. My dad had become a follower of Jesus shortly before I was conceived, and then my mom a few months later while pregnant with me. So that means I grew up in a home where my parents were excited about the Christian faith, wanting to learn everything, and they began to just naturally share this with their child. And so I grew up hearing about Jesus' miracles, his teaching, but I mostly heard that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of my sins. My dad tells the story that when I was four years old, while I may not have been able to grasp gravity, I began to grasp the reality of the cross. I one day peppered my dad with a bunch of questions, basically just restating the whole entire gospel story back to him. And he basically started saying, hey, Aaron, 
do you want to put your faith in Jesus? So he says, I climbed up into his lap. I prayed an innocent little four-year-old prayer, asking Jesus into my heart. And then I got down and went right back to playing with my toys. But I grew up hearing about the cross. And I understood as best I could its significance. However, as I grew, I did not grasp the, the, the importance of the resurrection. I just thought the resurrection was kind of like this nice bonus. Like what really mattered was Jesus' death on the cross because the penalty of sin was death, the scripture teaches. Jesus did that for us. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, and by the way, he rose again from the dead. Wow, that's kind of cool. But I did not realize that the resurrection is actually the linchpin of the whole entire gospel story and therefore the linchpin of the entire gospel faith. And not only did this lack of the grasp of the reality of the resurrection go through my elementary years, it continued on into my teens and even into my 20s. So if you are here today and you kind of think that this whole thing about the resurrection is just a myth or it's just legend or maybe, okay, yeah, it really happened as amazing as it is, but it really doesn't make that big of a difference. I hope today might help change your mind. And if you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus, I hope today will encourage you because the resurrection should change everything. Today, we're going to go to two different passages of scriptures to help see the importance of the resurrection and how key and critical it is to the Christian faith and to our daily lives. The first one is in Luke chapter 24. So if you brought a Bible today, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 24. If you are a first-time guest, we will be putting almost all of the scripture on the screen so that you can learn with us. But we really encourage you, have your own Bible. Now, we don't care if that is a digital Bible on your phone or a paper Bible. We just think it's important for you to have one because we don't want you just studying it on Sunday when we gather together on uh, Sundays, but we want you to be able to read this thing on Monday and Tuesday and any day. So either download one to your phone or stop by our resource table and take one of the Bibles that are there, and that would be our Easter gift to you. As we get ready to uh, read from Luke 24, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, bow before you right now asking for you to be our teacher. Father, I've put some time and preparation into this. And yet, Lord, I just realize how weak it all is to think that this um, error-prone, at times hypocritical man could somehow convey these important weighty truths in, in a way that we all can understand it. I just, I just know, Father, I'm going to fall short. As I deal with such an important subject, I pray that you do what only you can do that you would be able to speak to the hearts and minds of every single person that is here, no matter what their age, no matter what their spiritual background, no matter what they're walking in with today, no matter what they're wrestling with, no matter what they're worrying about in their future, that you would speak loud and clear and we would see not only how important the resurrection is, but that we would also see how important it is to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke 24, uh, we've been walking through the book of Luke uh, throughout this whole death-defeated series. Last Sunday for Palm Sunday, we heard Luke's account of the triumphal entry. This past Friday at our Good Friday service, we read a humongous chunk out of chapter 22 and 23. To start our worship gathering today, uh, Jake read from Luke uh, 24, verses 1 through 12. So that means we're ready for verse 13. So if you have your Bible open to Luke 24, join me at verse 13. That very day... That meaning the resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the chosen one to redeem Israel. Uh, Yes, and beside all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They, uh, They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So our story starts off with these two gentlemen. Well, we think it might be two gentlemen. There's a good theory that it might be a, a, a gentleman and his wife, Cleopas and his wife. And they're walking to Emmaus. They're clearly followers of Jesus. They, they believe he was the Messiah. And because they're able to relate some of the story that just happened prior, which we heard uh, to start our worship gathering, they heard about the, the women seeing these angels. They heard that Peter had made it to the tomb but didn't find the body. And so they're so confused. They're wondering what is going on. And that's when Jesus begins to teach. Verse 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you hear it in there? Yeah, he kind of insults them. Oh, you foolish people, you slow of heart. But he says, you're slow to believe all the prophets. And he begins to explain from Moses and the prophets. By referring to Moses, he's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. To the Jews, they call that the Torah. Many Christians call it the Pentateuch. A tradition holds that Moses wrote those first five books, except for the last few chapters where Joshua wrote them as, as Moses has died. And, and so Moses wrote all that. And Jesus is saying, all the way back to Moses, he was prophesying about my coming. And then he goes to Isaiah and Jeremiah, to Daniel, to Hosea. And he starts showing how even the major and minor prophets had been pointing to these events. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, this was all planned. Anyone here seen the movie The Karate Kid, the the original? Okay, if you're raising your hand, you're probably over 30. Uh, The the original Karate Kid stars a a guy named Daniel. Daniel has moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, and his East Coast jive just doesn't seem to fit with the West Coast. And so pretty soon there are these bullies. They're feeling threatened by him because the the one girl seems to like him. And so they begin to bully him, and there's even an event where Daniel tries to get some revenge, and they chase him down, and they start beating him up. Well, then Mr. Miyagi jumps in, saves Daniel, uses karate to defeat these other guys. So Daniel wants to be like Mr. Miyagi. Asked him, will you teach me karate? Mr. Miyagi very reluctantly agrees to do it. And so Daniel shows up all excited, ready to learn. 
And instead, Mr. Miyagi hands him a paintbrush and teaches him paint the fence. And he has to do it a certain way. All day long, Daniel's painting this fence and he hates it. But he's thinking, maybe this is my way to pay for these things. And I don't have much money. My mom and I were poor. So maybe this is my way to pay. But tomorrow we'll start karate. So the next time he shows up, he has to wash the car and then wax on, wax off. He's like, what is going on? Pretty soon he's sanding the deck. And, and finally, Daniel just reaches frustration point. Just like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. You're not teaching me karate. Suddenly, Mr. Miyagi grabbed the hold of him. And in a pivotal scene, says, show me paint the fence. And right as Daniel's doing the paint the fence, Mr. Miyagi goes to do a punch and it gets blocked. And he blocks again and blocks and blocks. And suddenly he realizes he's been being taught karate the entire time. Daniel was so confused, but Mr. Miyagi had a plan. Like the two people on the road to Emmaus, they were confused. They were bewildered. We thought this was the Messiah. We thought he was going to free Israel from Rome. We thought all these big things, but now he's dead. And then these women, and we all know women can't be trusted with their testimony, they say that he's risen from the dead, that some angels showed up. But man, one of our guys went, and yeah, the body's not there, but we didn't see Jesus. We don't know what's going on. And Jesus just basically looks at him and goes, guys, it's all going according to plan. This was not a mistake. It was God's plan for Jesus to not only come down, God to take on human flesh, live a sinless life, but to go and die such a horrible, torturous death on a cross, only to rise again from the dead. Even as Jesus was on that cross, knowing he was about to breathe his last, knowing how painful this all was, he knew he would live again. John 10, 17, 18, which we've used in last Sunday on Good Friday and now again this morning. Jesus said, I lay down my life willingly. No one can take it from me. I have the right and authority to lay it down and I have the right and authority to take it back up. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus is unique. There is no one like Jesus. You may say, well, you know, Jesus' birth was pretty unique. I mean, he, he, after all, he was a, uh, uh, you know, the God incarnate, born of a virgin. But when the shepherds showed up, they, they didn't see the Son of God. They, they just saw a baby who looked like every other Palestinian Jewish boy born at the time. You may say, well, therefore, it's Jesus' death that sets him apart. Well, no. 100% of people die. Sorry to ruin your day. Like, the mortality rate is, is steady. So the fact that Jesus died doesn't make him unique. Well, it's the fact that Jesus died on a cross. No. Thousands upon thousands of people were killed upon crosses. In fact, I learned this week that uh, in 66 AD, the, the nation of Israel tried to revolt against the Roman Empire, started what was known as the Great Revolt. Between 66 AD and 70 AD, when the Romans finally destroyed the temple, the war lasted a couple more years. But between 66 AD and 70 AD, at times... The Romans were crucifying 500 Jews a day. So we are talking thousands upon thousands who've died on a cross. So it is not the cross that makes Jesus unique. It is his resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Oh, but Aaron, I know of other resurrections within the scripture. Like I, I, I see the little girl who was res uh, resurrected or, or Lazarus was resurrected. Yeah, but none of them rose themselves from the dead. Only Jesus. Jesus is unique. And it was the plan all along that he would do this. And because that was the plan, 
you can seek him and trust him. It also tells us that the resurrection is the linchpin. No resurrection, no gospel, no Christian faith. To show this, I'm going to invite you to flip to our second passage for today, 1 Corinthians 15. So if you know where 1 Corinthians is, go ahead and flip over to chapter 15. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this really, really messy church. This church was struggling with divisions, uh, discrimination. Uh, they were struggling financially. Uh, they were, you know, like kind of giving too much grace to people who should have known better, but they weren't giving enough grace to those who really needed it. I mean, this, this place was a mess. I sometimes will hear pastors and church leaders say, man, we want to we have a New Testament church. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, I sure hope it's not in the Corinthian church because that place was awful. Paul ends up addressing all of these issues. And it's like as he starts to get to the end of his letter, he just realizes, you know what? I just need to get them back to that which is basic. And so as we get to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you. So in other words, when I was with you, as I was planting this church, as I was sharing the gospel, as I was discipling you, as I delivered to you as of first importance, so this is the most key critical thing that they could get. This is the foundation. And it's what he also received. So he's saying, this is what God gave to me. So God gave it to me. I'm giving it to you. This is the absolute most important thing. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Just like Jesus tells the two people on the road to Emmaus, all of the Old Testament, all of the Jewish scriptures point to me. Paul is saying the same thing. That all of it, the death and resurrection of Christ, was all prophesied. This is all the plan. That's because this is the absolute linchpin of Christianity. Many of you know that I am a, a little bit of a baseball fan. Fortunately, I'm a Kansas City Royals fan, so I'm very aware of suffering and misery. But I want you to imagine a baseball game where the pitcher's on the mound, puts his foot on the rubber, looks into the catcher, gets the sign, goes into his motion. But as he's going to throw, there's no ball in his hand. It's invisible. He throws it in. The batter swings at nothing. And then everyone waits around for the ump to say what happened. Oh, you, missed, you swung and missed. That was a ball. I mean, a, a strike. Or, oh, no, that was a foul ball, but the third baseman couldn't see the invisible ball, so he didn't catch it in the foul territory. So now it's strike two. Oh, that one was a home run. Like, it wouldn't work. You, you take out the baseball, you don't have the game of baseball. It's the same with the resurrection. You take out the resurrection, we have no Christianity. That's what Paul begins to argue after saying that according to the scriptures, he died and rose again. He begins saying, in fact, he says it down in verse 14. I apologize, this one's not up on the screen. In verse 14, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. No resurrection, no gospel. No gospel, no faith. You have to have the resurrection. It is important. It is what legitimizes the work of Good Friday. If you want to, think of it this way. Jesus defeated sin on Good Friday and defeated death on Sunday. In fact, that's why down in verses 20, and 20, uh, 20 through 22, we hear Paul say this. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let, let's, let me just explain that for a minute. Kids, that word first fruits is an Old Testament word. When the Jewish people would collect their harvest, they were supposed to bring the first portion to God as worship. It was called the first fruits. So this is just a poetical way of saying kind of, this is the first and, and most important. But notice, it's that Christ is the first fruit of what? Of those who have fallen asleep. Kids, he's not talking about a nap. Now, your moms and dads probably would love to have a nap this afternoon, but I know you're fighting it. You don't want this. This is not a nap. This is a poetical way of describing those who have died. And the reason he says they have fallen asleep is because even though they have died, they will not stay there because they will be resurrected. Notice what he says in 21 and 22. He's talking about Adam. Adam is the first man ever created, but when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, sin came crashing in. And God had warned them, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And in that moment, when they ate of it, their spirit immediately died. It, it fractured the relationship with God. And physically, they began then a slow death. It took decades and centuries, but they eventually died physically. Then Paul says, yes, but Christ came and through him, if you are, to use Paul's language, in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you too are resurrected spiritually and one day will be resurrected physically. We're not going to take the time, but I encourage you to go back and read all of 1 Corinthians 15. Later, he talks about how even though our bodies will die, they're like a seed and they, they will sprout something new and we will take on spiritual bodies. That which is perishing will eventually become imperishable. Right, we're going to see that in a moment. But he's saying, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are resurrected spiritually immediately and you already begin to live the eternal life. That is why he says down in verse uh, 26 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. As I said, on that Friday, upon a cross, Jesus defeated sin. But it was on a Sunday when he rose again, he showed that he defeated even death. So what does this all then mean? Oh, I, I forgot this one. I, I want to point this one out. Flip over. Uh, this is the end of the chapter, verses 54 and 55. Pa Paul basically begins to mock this idea of death. He says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, so when our, our bodies here, these natural bodies, end up being transformed into spiritual bodies, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes from Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, Where's your sting? If you are a follower of Jesus, all of this should encourage you tremendously. Because it means that when you are at the funeral of a fellow Jesus follower, you are not saying goodbye. You're saying, I'll see you later. It means that the pain, the misery, the suffering that you go through in this life is not the last word. It means that there is more. It means that there is more to this life, which then can mean that there's more in this life. In fact, the whole resurrection isn't just to be like a, a great moment in history, kind of like, wow, Jesus is really powerful. It is to be a motivator 
That's why Paul finishes out this chapter, verse 58. He says to Jesus' followers, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection should motivate you to stay steadfast, to remain immobile, to not be wavered by the culture around you, to not be struggling up and down, but instead to stay steady and keep your eyes on the resurrected Christ. Because this is not all there is. What you do here has meaning and it affects the life to come. But what if you're not a follower of Jesus? Then the resurrection is an invitation. There's no one like Jesus. Jesus is completely separated from anyone and everyone. All sorts of religions tell you all these things that you need to do. But Jesus looks at us through the resurrection and says, I've taken care of it. It's done. There's nothing you need to do to earn God's love. Instead, what you need to do is accept God's love. The way Jesus puts it is those who believe upon his name. It's a way of saying, when you put all of your faith, all of your identity in this story of Jesus' death and resurrection, it had been the plan all along. It's the linchpin of faith. And he now extends the hand to you and says, will you follow me? I would love for today to be your spiritual birthday. I would love for you to realize the power and truth of this gospel. It does not mean it's going to suddenly make life suddenly easier. It just means life can take on a new meaning. You see, right now, when we are born, we are born in the likeness of Adam. We are simply physical human beings born with a sin nature. What God wants to do is transform us, to change us, so that we aren't just simply more like Adam. Instead, he wants us to become more like Jesus. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Our broken and hurting world needs more people who will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. We see Jesus' heart for people. We see his humility. We see his willingness to go and do what he didn't need. He didn't need to die on a cross for his sins because he had none but he went to it for you. But to show that he had power over all things, even death itself, Jesus resurrects and now extends the hand and says, follow me. Many people, when they realize the truth of the story and that realize it's not just something from history, it's not just some story out of some ancient book, but it's an actual present reality that can change my here and now, they realize that they want to mark the moment in prayer. And so if you would, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just pray right now for anyone who's listening to this here in person, online, or the podcast later, and if they have made it this far and they realize that you are extending your hand, inviting them to follow a risen Savior, I pray that you would lead them right now to confess their sin, to acknowledge their need for you, to surrender themselves, and to put you first in all things. And as they do so, God, you are putting your spirit in them. You are beginning now the slow transformation of making them less like Adam and more like Jesus, that we are becoming more and more like the person of heaven. Lord, I thank you for what they have done, the decision that they have made, the way you have moved in them. Lord, I pray that you would give them fruitful days ahead, that they would realize they have a church family here who will want to love them and support them, disciple them, help them to grow to be more like Jesus so they can go and live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. But also, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ 
who are here, they know these things, they even believe them. And yet maybe they feel a little bit like the two dudes walking on the road to Emmaus. They're confused about the way life has been going. They don't understand where you are, why you're not answering their prayers. And I pray that today they would see the resurrected Christ and realize he is saying, trust me, follow me. Everything is going according to plan. Jesus, we thank you for what you did. It's absolutely remarkable that you set aside your throne in heaven to come to this earth, to take on this human flesh and to enter into our suffering with us. That wasn't enough for you to just simply show us that you can identify with us. You went to a cross and you paid the price that we should have paid for our sin so that you could then give us the life you had always desired for humanity to live. So Father, help us to follow you, to trust you, and to see a risen Jesus and realize that through him, death is defeated and we can walk in that victory and find joy in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you uh, today put your faith in Jesus, would you just use that connection card and at the top on the, the back side on the top right column, uh, would you just simply mark that today you chose to begin to follow Jesus? Our goal at Riverwood is not to, to get as many of those check marks as possible. Our, our goal is to help people like you really follow Jesus. We, we believe our world needs you. And so we just want to know so that we can begin to follow up and help you get connected, not just to Riverwood, but with God and begin this process of growing. Also, if you have a prayer request today, if there's something during the sermon just kind of stirred your soul and you realize you need to write that down, please use the back of that connection card and write that down. We would be honored to pray for you. Just drop those in that uh, giving box uh, on your way out. So to finish, let's finish with a couple of songs. I'm going to invite you to stand and let's exalt and worship our risen Savior.